0: This week on J, we're listening to the latest of the Westminster Town Hall Forum, recorded at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. The topic is Healing
1: a Divided America. Today's speaker is former Attorney General Eric Holder. Here's Forum Moderator, Reverend Tim Hart Anderson. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight, tonight's Westminster Town Hall Forum speaker. Eric Holder served as the 82nd Attorney General of the United States, and the first African American to hold that position. He held the office as part of the Obama administration from February 2009 to April 2015, making him the third longest serving Attorney General in US history. During his his tenure, which some of us remember fondly, he championed hallmark legislation on voting rights, on immigration law, national security, and same sex marriage. Following his tenure as Attorney General, Mr. Holder founded the National Democratic Redistricting Committee to work on bringing fair representation to American democracy. Mr. Holder's first book is Our Unfinished March The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, a history a crisis, a plan. co authored with Sam Koppelman, it tells the history of the vote in America and urges new protections to per- per- perfect our democracy. Next chapter books is selling the book outside. Are, many of them are signed by Mr. Holder, are unfinished. March is for sale after the forum outside. And now, please join me in welcoming you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Eric Holder. Thank you. thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. We love you, in Minnesota. All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I haven't said a word, and I got a standing ovation. I think I ought to leave, like, now, you know? <laughs> it, you can only go downhill from it, here, you know?
1: It's because Geraldine warmed him up. I that was going to say. I was going to say. Yeah, uh, thank you Thank you again for joining us, uh, Attorney General Holder. We're grateful for your presence, for your wisdom, for your service to the country, and for this conversation we're going to have tonight. A number of uh, Americans these days feel like democracy is in crisis and imperiled, actually. And some Americans feel like that's kind of something happening under our watch in, in our time. You, however, take a long view about the perils of democracy, the fragility, the precarious nature of American democracy, really from the start. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, first I would agree that I think our democracy is under attack.
0: I do think our democracy is, um, is a fragile thing, uh, not something that we can take for granted. We're approaching our 250th year, but unless we pay more attention to the protection of our democracy, we uh, have the potential to lose it, Uh, I'll talk about some history here, but just to kind of give you what as a, I don't want to be apocalyptic, but to give you a a sense of the way I think of this, I I think about Europe in the 20th century and the rise of fascism. That didn't happen because fascism was strong, it happened because the defense of democracy was weak. And unless we are strong in the defense of our democracy, we won't have a dictator necessarily, but our elections every two years, four years, six years, could be rendered um, meaningless. Every generation of Americans has had to deal with issues around the protection of our democracy. Uh, we start off in, in the book, you know, as, looking back to the beginning of the Republic, when um, you know, only 6% of the, the people in the United States who we would consider now to be voter eligible actually cast a ballot for George, or were able to cast a ballot in the election that uh, made George Washington our first president, only, only 6% and a substantial group of people, the first group of people who said, you know what, we ought to have the right to vote. That first group was white men who didn't own property, who didn't own property. They said, you know, wait a minute, we fight in the wars, we do all these other things, we don't have the ability uh, to vote. The founders, in putting our constitution together, thought about that and said, well, you know, at least some said, well, you know, if you give white men who don't have property the right to vote, they don't have the intellectual capacity, they can be bribed, uh, that's not a good thing. And the other thing is that if you do that, other groups of people will ask for the right to vote. And one of the founders says, well, can you imagine, women will ask for the, the right <laughs> to, to vote. Imagine that. Ima- imagine that. <laughs> and so uh, with, you know, so we start off with white men, then women. Uh, get the right to vote. African Americans are granted the right to vote and then have to fight to regain the the right to vote. So there have been constant challenges um, in our nation's history about whose voice is heard, um, whose voice matters. And what we're facing today is um, similar to what other generations of Americans um, have faced. And I'm confident that this generation of Americans will rise to the challenge of other, as other generations of Americans have done in the past.
1: You titled your book, or or someone titled your book, uh, Our uh, Unfinished Unfinished March. March. Mm -hmm. Who is the our and what is the march?
0: And that's a really good question because if I had to do this over, um, I would not have called it Our Unfinished March because I think that in some ways gives people the impression that I'm talking about uh, people of color. Generally, or African Americans specifically, I would have retitled this America's Unfinished March because it really deals with the, the history of, um, you know, as I said, white men without property to uh, all other segments of our society um, struggling to get the right to vote, struggling to be heard, um, fighting to be a part of this thing that we call American uh, democracy. And it really is, you know, the first part deals with the history, the second part deals with kind of where we are now, and the third part deals with some structural reforms that I think we need to consider to perfect um, this democracy of ours. I mean, this nation is better now than it was 50 years ago and better than it was 50 years before that, but we're not yet at the place where, um, you know, where, we, need, where we need to be. We're more perfect,
1: but we're not perfect. The, the reference, I took the reference to March, the word March in your book's title to mean that uh, we had to struggle, at, uh, we, America had to struggle at each one of these thresholds right. to expand the franchise, to, to include more in the voting uh, and the move to, you know, expand the democracy in this land.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we tend to forget. Ours is a revolutionary society. I mean, the march began in the fight against the British. You know, we... Um, the first revolution, the first large-scale successful revolution that resulted in the democracy that we have. I mean, think about it. You know, a bunch of ragtag people with arms and, you know, not a really great standing army took on the mightiest empire in the world and birthed this
1: nation. And so that march began
0: there, and
1: it continues
0: um, today.
1: Doesn't that implicitly uh, suggest, I guess, that... To make progress, there's struggle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, apparently, it's violent, hopefully nonviolent. but power does not give up. Basically, it's a question of giving up power, somebody giving up power so others have more. Right,
0: no, I think that's exactly right. That's a very good point. This is all about the acquisition and the retention of power. At the end of the day, it's all about power. Again, whose voice matters, who will be heard. Um, those people who have power are reluctant to give it up. Those people without power, hopefully, will do that which is necessary to obtain the power to which they are um, entitled. It is—it's been a constant pull and push throughout the history, you know, of this uh, of this nation.
1: The the vote was originally conceived of as a privilege, right? And over time, it's become known or seen as a right, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, an interesting semantic shift, and it, it says something about uh, uh, the those who have power losing privilege. And it's not easy when that happens. No, not at
0: all. Um, You know, if you look at the way in which we were set up, uh, you know, yeah, it was a privilege. You know, again, white men without property, you don't have the right to vote, and even those who do have the right to vote, if you're talking about the presidency, well, you didn't really vote for the president. You were voting just to send people to the electoral college, and that they would then determine you know, who the president would be. Senators were not picked by you know, the direct popular vote until we had a constitutional amendment. So there have been um, constant attempts to make sure that those, again, who have power um, try to... Keep those who don 't have power keep them away from power, and even if power is granted to come up with filters so that that power is not necessarily um, directly felt. I mean you know we are the only industrialized nation that goes through a democratic process where people cast ballots for the president of the United States, but ultimately you can, as we have seen twice in the last few times you can get fewer popular votes and still win the election because you win in the Electoral College. And As we say in the book, you know, when you vote for class president, that person, the girl, or the boy, who gets the most votes is the class president. I mean, can you imagine a system where right, so Mary gets more votes than, than John, but because of some electoral college thing we got in the third grade, um, she doesn't get to be president, you know, Johnny does. And that's the way we run our, our country. And that's one of the things that we talk about, one of the
1: structural reforms. We, we will to get to the electoral college in a bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that- uh, one of the thing that's fascinating in how you tell the story of these uh, of the march is the individuals who marched. Yeah. And I, I don't know if, you, if someone comes at top of mind to you, who, who are some of the characters that you remember in, the, in this history, the story of, of yeah. the sacrifice and sometimes uh, giving giving their all to? Yeah, I mean, vote. for
0: those of you who think, all right, you know, he you starts off with history. Oh God, history. No, this is actually, I think, pretty, it's pretty interesting. Um, we tried to make this as accessible as we could um, I wrote the first couple of chapters and I looked at it and said, this is reading kind of like a law review article. This is, this is going to be, you know, you'd read it before bed and you'd be guaranteed a good eight hours of sleep. <laughs> so I said, oh, we, we, can't, we can't do that. Um, and so we tell the history by looking at various people and what various people have done and tell their stories. And one who comes to mind is a, a woman named Alice Paul, um, a suffragette a woman determined to get the right to vote for women. Um, She marches in 1913 down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. with a group of other women, and people know about this march to some degree, um, but what they don't know is that these women, as they march down Pennsylvania Avenue, which is not far from where I live, they were beaten, beaten by people on the sidelines, on the sidewalks, you know, things thrown at them, uh, you know, predominantly men trying to stop these women from getting power. Um, she then stayed at the White House for a couple of years leading up to um, uh, 1917. Um, the the, the she night she stayed at the outside the White outside House outside the White House for a couple of years leading up to 1917, um, just protesting and saying, you know, we have to have the vote. Women have to have the vote. And on a particular night in 1917, she and some other protesters were arrested taken to the D.C. jail. Um, They then go on on a hunger strike, and then tubes were put down their noses in a very unbelievably rough, terrible manner, and they were force-fed. Woodrow Wilson um, hears about this. He had been kind of on the fence, but hears about the way in which these women had been treated, and then ultimately says, you know what, I will um, uh, express my support for the amendment that will grant suffrage um, to women. And so the history part is about Individuals um, who did extraordinary things—you know, so-called ordinary Americans who did um, extraordinary things—and my hope was to convince people in this time that the individual can still matter. And it's not because Eric Holder is saying it, but because I can point to people in our past uh, who did, you know, extraordinary things, and we talk about people in the present as well. But. uh, the capacity within all of us to bring about that, ki- that
1: kind of change uh, exists. Of course, the civil rights movement is full of such individuals, and, and you, a very moving part of this book is when you tell the story of going back to Selma mm-hmm. and marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, with some of the, the heroes of that, of that time, of that march across the bridge, John Lewis included. Yeah. Uh, What does that do for you personally, not having actually participated in the original march over the bridge, but being there to kind of recreate it?
0: Yeah, it was really um,
1: pretty emotional. Um,
0: 2015 was the 50th anniversary of the march, Um, you know, bloody Sunday going across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and I was there, President Obama, John Lewis, President Bush, Um, and I saw that happen in 1965. I was 14 years old, right, people calculating now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm that old, I'm that old. Um, And I remember watching on my black and white TV, for those of you who are young, there were these things called black and white TVs, um, and, and watching these marchers, you know, trying to march for voting rights, get beaten by these state troopers and kind of, not. Growing up in New York City, not quite understand you know, what's this kind of all about, uh, piqued my interest and I think is the thing that really kind of started me on the road. That plus an incident that happened in 1963 when my late sister-in-law integrated the University of Alabama when George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door. Those things really kind of um, interested me in, you know, in, 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 civic, in civic life. And so the thought that I would be there um, as Attorney General of the United States with John Lewis, who used to always say, this is my friend Eric here. And I I could never, as I say, I I could never call John Lewis my friend. I mean, he uh, he was a great man. Uh, It was great that we had a a wonderful relationship, but he's an icon. You can't be a friend to an icon, you know? Um, And to be there with him, you know, locking arms and walking over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and keeping in my own mind those black and white pictures of seeing the young John Lewis with the backpack you know marching ahead, and then you know the state troopers with the batons and him trying to cover his head, and to think that i 'm walking with this icon this this one of what, one of the people who I consider uh, the, the second group of founding fathers, you know, um, one of the second founders, because the, the civil rights movement created a nation that did not exist before. We they destroyed a system of American apartheid and made this nation um, better. And to be with him, in addition to this guy Barack Obama, um, you know, but but to be with him um, on that bridge at that time, um, and also with George Bush, you know, to, he was there he signed the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And though I had policy differences with with President Bush, he's actually a really nice man. He's a decent man. He's funny as anything. Um, And it was good that he said that, you know, he thought that he needed um, to be there Mm -hmm. to be a part of that uh, that celebration.
1: You mentioned the Voting Rights Act, and that's kind of uh, one of the more recent uh, turning points in this long march. uh, When we get to the Shelby decision. Right. And I know you, I don't, you don't want us to use Shelby. It's,
0: it's actually called Shelby County versus Holder. Yeah. But I don't ever want my name associated with that case. So if you want to like piss me off, you say the Shelby County versus Holder. That's like being, you know, like like Dred Scott versus Holder. You would never want your name to be associated with a case that bad, you know, so it's kind of like, it's just the Shelby County case. And I thank you for that.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've clarified that, what, what was it that Shelby did uh, the, uh, to the Voting Rights Act that was so harmful to the nation?
0: Well, uh, without getting too technical, it essentially um, crippled, it, it blew a hole in the, the Voting Rights Act and took away from the Justice Department the ability to pre-clear um, uh, voting changes, electoral changes, that states or localities that were covered jurisdictions would try to put in place. For instance, if a state, um, you know, it was predominantly the, the Old South, but it was also parts of the North as well. If you wanted to co- close a polling place in Mississippi um, and you covered jurisdiction, you had to go to the Justice Department to ask you know, if you ha- could get permission to do that. Uh, if you wanted to shorten voting hours, you had to do those kinds of things. Um, Shelby County, the Shelby County case took that power away from the Justice Department and essentially gave the states and these localities kind of free reign to do that which they wanted to do. And it didn't take years for the states to do things. It didn't even take months. It took weeks for the states, after the Shelby County case was um, decided, to put into place a whole bunch of unnecessary voter-suppressive um, Requirements. This notion of photo ID, for instance, certainly that suddenly raised, it raised its head. You know, a great concern about electoral integrity, about people casting uh, in person fraudulent ballots. All of a sudden, that became something that people in these jurisdictions wanted to deal with. Interestingly, Texas really kind of led the way. It, it is the, Texas is the hardest place in the country to vote. It is it is the hardest place in the country to vote. Um, they put in a photo ID law. To give you a sense of this. They said, all right, if you have a photo ID state issue that says that you can carry a concealed weapon, carry a gun, whatever, all right, fool, you can vote. If you are a student has a state-issued photo ID from the University of Texas, says you're a resident of Texas, that's not good, you know? So the photo ID, so you know, we, we want to stop fraud and all that kind of stuff. But you can see the value judgment that they're making. You know, those who carry concealed weapons, guns—that's fine. Students, state-issued ID, picture, and all that stuff—that wasn't. That wasn't fine. Um, and so Shelby County took away from that. If now it, had the Shelby County case not been decided, the Justice Department clearly would have opposed that. And I suspect if. Texas didn't fold and it actually had gone to trial in a special court that set up in Washington DC the justice department would have uh, would have won since so Shelby County 1700 polling places have been closed around the country predominantly in communities of color um, voter purges have gone up 40%, predominantly in um, communities of color, all of which could have been stopped by a Justice Department that had not been depowered by the, uh, the Shelby County case.
1: So let's talk about some of the remedies that, that you're supporting here. Uh, voting access, mm-hmm. registration, actually access to the ballot box. What are, what are the remedies we can do with, with Shelby uh, gone? Well, well having the Voting Rights Act.
0: Yeah, I mean one of the big things is that we have to redo the Voting Rights Act and you know, we have to pass a Voting Rights Act that will pass constitutional muster and not only have it cover the old south but to cover the nation as a whole because the reality is that you all in Minnesota live right next door to the most gerrymandered state in the country now, Wisconsin. Uh, It's not just a question of what's going on in Mississippi and Alabama, Georgia. Wisconsin has got problems, Ohio we've got problems. Um, and so we need a new Voting Rights Act. But w- what I also talk about um, are, are ways in which we make it easier to vote, not harder to vote. Let's make it so that we have a guarantee of 14 days, federal standards, 14 days of early voting. Make it so that you have automatic voter registration. You find that the biggest impediment to um, people voting who say they want to vote, the biggest impediment is that they're not registered. And you have to go through all kinds of things to register in a variety of places. So automatic voter registration. North Carolina had a, pro- had a, a program. When you were 17 years old in high school, you were automatically registered um, to vote. And when, when you turned 18, you could cast a, cast a ballot. Republicans took over the legislature and had governorship, and they did away with that. Never quite understood how you could justify that. You know, we're gonna, but a whole range of things like that: um, automatic voter registration, the re-enfranchisement of people who had been in the criminal justice system, felon re-enfranchisement. That is something that I think um, should occur. People in Florida, you know, we're a pretty divided nation. About 65% of the folks in Florida said, "You know what?" People who have served their time, want to have the ability to um, cast a ballot. We're gonna re them. It would have been the largest re since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Republican legislature there, through a variety of ways, essentially um, did away with that which the people of Florida said that they wanted to do. Um, outlaw partisan and racial gerrymandering. Another thing that I think we need to do that takes power away from um, you know, regular
1: Americans. To, to reinstate the Voting Rights Act it would require legislation, yes. federal legislation. Yep. Uh, tell us about the filibuster. Got to go. <laughs> Got to go. Got to go.
0: If you look at the use of the filibuster from the beginning of the uh, the republic, it's like this. It only actually starts in the 18th century. It goes like this, like this, and then maybe the last seven, eight years goes up like that, the use of the filibuster. There are actually people, You know, a lot of folks believe that to pass something in the Senate, you have to have 60 votes. No, you don't, that's, just, you have, that's only because you have the filibuster. It, the founders considered whether or not you should have super majorities in order to pass legislation, but because of the bad interactions we had, experience, bad experience we had with the Articles of Confederation, they said, no, majority rule is what should decide. The filibuster um, has been used primarily until recently to stop civil rights bills. That's when you saw the filibuster. But now it's being used just as a matter of routine. Uh, Used to, you know, we think of the filibuster in the old days. Jimmy Stewart, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, standing up there for like 40 hours. He can barely talk. And he's still, you know, and he's keeping, stopping. That was a good Jimmy Stewart imitation. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Doing, you know, all this stuff to stop these, you know, corrupt things from happening. Now the filibuster is you just call up from your office yeah. and say, hey, I'm filibustering the bill. I, I said, the senator probably doesn't even have to do it, probably a staffer calls in. You, know, you don't identify who the senator is, um, and that means that you've then got to have 60 votes in order to do away with it. And um, the way in which we have you know, two senators per state means that you can, through the filibuster, have senators who represent about 20% of the nation's population Um, put in place a filibuster that can't be overridden and stop, you know, legislation. And so the filibuster has got to go. You know, we had, Democrats had that opportunity in the last session of Congress, um, Senators, cinema, and mansion would not go along um, with it, and as a result, we did not have the ability to do a lot of the things that I talk about in the book that we could have done mm-hmm. if we had done away with the, uh, with the with the filibuster. It's not likely to happen. So, well, it's not going to happen. Um, you know this. Um, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. I'm sort of thinking, thinking oh. no, 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 it's, 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 it's still not going to happen. Even, with, even at 51, uh, you would have to get uh, either cinema or, or mansion to go along, and I,
1: that's just li- not likely to happen. Speaking of doing away with things, you have some thoughts about the Electoral College. Yep, got to go, got to go. <laughs> um,
0: you know, if you think about the Electoral College again, you know, you can win more votes and still lose the election, which is counterintuitive to me if we, if we are truly a democracy, uh, but the other impact of the Electoral College is that we focus our attention on a few states that are so-called swing states. Republicans, Republican, Republican presidential candidates never campaign in New York. Never campaign in California, because they're not gonna, they're gonna win there. Democrats don't campaign in Texas to any great degree or in, in, the, in the southern states. If you did away with the Electoral College and just the greatest number of votes would decide who the president was, you would have people, now it means Iowa would probably not get as much attention as it does, sorry. Um, you know, um, But California would get a lot more attention, New York would get a lot more attention, um, and you would have candidates really campaigning on a national basis around the country, and that would make a great deal of sense. You know, the notion that we end up with presidents, and again, you know, like I said, I had big policy differences with President Bush. You know, he was elected, that was a close one, you know, 600 votes, w- whatever it was. Um, Donald Trump lost by almost three million votes you know, um, and nevertheless did all the stuff that he did. And so when, you know, I, when I'm in, in Europe and people say, well, you know, boy, the American people, how could the American people have voted for Trump? And I said, the American people did not vote for Trump. The Electoral College put him in place. And you want to talk about the dangers of it. I mean, after four years of Donald Trump, he lost by 7 million votes. But the vote in the Electoral College was relatively close. If you would had a shift of about 75,000 votes in, I guess, three, maybe four states, um, 75,000 total in those three, four states, he would have been elected president, having lost the popular vote by by 7 million. And so that kind of system, it seems to me, simply can't... um, can't stay in place. It is fundamentally um, anti, anti-democratic. And I think harmful to um, you know, our desire to be more unified. Um, you know, If you have the greatest number of people expressing belief in a particular candidate and then that candidate doesn't have the ability uh, to get the powers of the presidency, or if you have a system because of the way in which you know, people are, are distributed around the country, that you have people who run for office just focusing on these so-called swing states, but ignoring you know, the vast majority of, of the people. Again, that is not something that is designed to promote the kind of unity that I think this nation
1: so sorely needs. Supreme Court, do you have thoughts about the Supreme Court?
0: It's gotta go, no, no, no. Just no. <laughs> kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. This iteration of the Supreme Court Okay, anyway, all right. Um, no, the Supreme Court, my big concern there, if you look at the beginning of the Republic, people you, people who serve on the Supreme Court, all federal judges have lifetime tenure. That is to insulate them from um, political pressure and that's a good thing. Um, that was set up in the you know latter part of the 18th century when people didn't live nearly as long as we now do. And so life tenure didn't mean like, you serve on the court for 30 and 40 years, most of the people who left the court in the early part of the Republic left because they died. Um, now we have a system where people, this is Democrats as well as Republicans, um, live longer and have the ability to decide when they're gonna retire, even after they've served you know, 30 years or so and say, well, I'll wait for a Democrat like Justice Breyer. He resigns. Justice Kennedy waited for a Republican. He resigned. Justice O'Connor waited for a Republican. She resigns. Um, and so it's a self-perpetuating thing. You know, you get the majority, and then unless there's something, you know, a tragic accident, an unexpected death, even there talk about what the Scalia seat, but that's a whole other deal. Um, you know, the justices are deciding who, at least ideologically, their successors um, will be. But at a more fundamental level, um, the notion that you, you put people on the court now, you know, in their 50s, um, and with the hope that they'll serve, you know, 30, 40 years, that is too much power in the hands of an unelected Person to have for that extended a period of time, and so my recommendation is that we should limit them to 18-year terms. Um, and it's interesting because Chief Justice Roberts and I don't agree on an awful lot, but I quote him in a speech. I think I set out a good portion of the speech um, where he says that um, justices should, justices should serve for a period of 15 15 years. So even he sees the value in having um, you know finite amount finite terms.
1: So these various remedies you've described, Supreme Court, Electoral College, filibuster, we didn't even get to gerrymandering and and redistricting, but what is the likelihood of all that coming to pass? Yeah, you know, people look at this stuff and say, you know, you're you're a dreamer,
0: it's not gonna happen. Um, And yet, you know, that's why the history part, I think, is so important. Because other people imagined an America that they had never experienced. Um, they fought for an America that they had never lived in. Um, they imagined a nation, a better nation, a better version of the America that they were, um, that they existed in. And that's, what I think, what we have to do. And so, yeah, this is, these are pretty extensive changes. And I don't think they're all going to happen at once, but this is, I think, a pretty good democracy menu that over time, I think, can actually um, occur. Uh, and I actually think that some of the things that are in there. Actually, have to happen if we're going to become a more unified nation. If we're going to be truer, truer to our, our our founding ideals, so I'm actually pretty optimistic. Um, it's not going to come easily, but the book always shows that you know all the changes that we kind of take for granted. You know, universal suffrage. Um, You know, a whole variety of things. None of it came easy. I mean, Alice Paul had a tube, you know, stuck down her throat, was beaten as um, she marched um, down Pennsylvania Avenue in 1913. That wasn't easy. Um, You know, Cheney, Schorner, and Goodman, 1964, um, that freedom summer, they were trying to register people to vote. Mm. They gave their lives. Um, What were their last thoughts as they were you know, murdered and clay. You know, uh, at least one of them was buried alive. Um, you know, what did they? What were they thinking? They were there to fight for an America that did not exist in Mississippi, where they were, uh, but they could imagine uh, that better America. So I think if we um, stay close to our creativity, stay close to our founding ideals, the possibility that all of these things can happen, I think, is uh,
1: is real. One last question for me, and it's uh, time for you all to write your questions on. We'll collect them in a moment. But, but they can
0: only be easy questions.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Why are you is... laughing? I'm
0: serious. It's only easy questions.
1: <laughs> I think this is probably on the mind of many people here, those viewing as well. What's your take on the midterms? Um, it was a good day for American, a good night, good day for
0: American democracy. You know, for the last 18 months or so, I have been saying in speeches, and i 've got the speeches i 'll show them to you um, i 've been saying you know what inflation is important. Um, the ability to get baby formula is important, um, you know our economic worries though, though, though that 's all important but what 's on the ballot, and what 's most important is our democracy that has to be um, the thing that keep people keep most in their mind as they cast um, their ballots and We've done some preliminary research looking at kind of the data that we're getting at the, at the National Democratic Redistricting Committee at the NDRC. And the big motivators we're finding now um, were democracy and reproductive rights. Those appear to be the things that drove people to a greater degree than expected. Now inflation was up there, um, but it was those three things. Um, and in New York, crime was also a big thing. But those are those, those the big three. Um, and in different states, uh, democracy um, and reproductive rights were you know, actually one and, and, and two. Um, so I think that what we found was that the American people care about our democracy, that they were concerned about these election deniers, um, concerned about the coup attempt on, on January the 6th uh, and the revelations that we've seen from the, um, you know, the January 6th committee. Uh, I, I think what we saw was you know, it's a good day for my party, and there's no question about that. I mean, an unexpectedly good day for for Democrats. But I don't think that, in some ways, is should be the main story. The main story should be that the American people, in substantial numbers, um, cast ballots for people who they thought would protect um, our democracy.
1: Good. Thank you for that. Uh, we're going to move to the, I almost said congregation, the audience. Thank you. Uh, If you've got a question for Mr. Holder, if you would, please hold that up. Ushers will come down the aisles and pick those up. If you're watching online, just put into the chat whatever comment or question you would like to have presented. We'll try to get to as many as possible. And while the ushers are collecting these questions, let me remind everyone, this is the Westminster Town Hall Forum coming to you from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of the forum and our guest is former Attorney General Eric Holder. This evening's program is co-sponsored by the Minneapolis Foundation. We'd like to thank them for their generous support of tonight's important conversation with Mr. Holder. Learn more about them and about their work in the community at MinneapolisFoundation.org. And I'd like also to thank our broadcast partner, Minnesota Public Radio. These fall forums will be broadcast as a special week long from the first week of December, Monday through Thursday. One program from Healing Our House Divided will air each day at noon. One program is live on Thursday here in the sanctuary. And then Min Post and Sahan Journal, thank you for covering the forum and covering so much Minnesota news. And now, Mr. Holder, let's turn to questions. Well, no, just
0: before we do this, I, I saw a, a, good, a question actually given by Attorney General Ellison. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, 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 no. No, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I do not want to answer his question. He knows me too well, and he'll say, Eric, what about the time? No, we're not, we're not going there, Keith, so get your, get your card
1: back. (laughs) I hope you put your name on it, Keith, so I'll be able to ask (laughs) you. E.J. Dionne spoke here at the forum uh, earlier this year with Miles Rappaport, and they are making the case that we, voting should be mandatory, like jury service. Yeah. And uh, how do you feel about that? I know you're supportive of, uh, of election day being a national holiday, but what do you think about mandatory voting? You know, if you give, uh, if, all right, so I need like 48 hours of total power,
0: you know? Give Eric 48 hours of total power. Um, and we could, we do this stuff real easy, um, but that's something I think that I would actually mandate. You know that you have to go to the polls. You that you, you know, you are they do this in, in Australia, New Zealand, and and so you go to the polls. You have to vote now, but you have to give people the choice. You Vote for you know candidate Y, candidate Z, but you could also have a box that says none of the above. You know, or I can't stand these idiots. You know, so well, you know something something like that. But the but somehow. You know, that's not likely to happen. And, and so I, I think what we try to do is to try to make people understand the power of their votes, the sacrifices that were made by people to get us to this place where people now have the vote. If you're a woman, a person of color, um, you know, a man. Um, people died so that you would have the ability to vote. And you know, people tell me, well, you know, my vote doesn't matter. Really? If your vote doesn't matter, why do you think they're trying so hard to deprive you of it or to make it more difficult for you to vote, you know?
1: Is it your view that the January 6th committee investigating uh, that incident, that attempted coup, is that advancing democracy? Absolutely. In what ways?
0: Because it um, reveals to us, again, the fragility of our democracy. You know, everybody says, oh, our system's held. Yeah, they did, but just barely, you know? Um, If Mike Pence had decided, for whatever reason, to recognize the, you know, or to say, well, we've got, we've got some you know, problems with the Arizona vote. We've got some problems with the Michigan vote here. Uh, I'm not gonna recognize those things. I mean, there would have been howls and, and everything, but it's entirely possible you might have thrown the election into the House of Representatives where the states then vote. Each state has one vote, and there are more Republican states than Democratic states. Trump could have won the election. Um, and so, the January 6th committee, by exposing all that went into the coup um, and the attempts to subvert our democracy, I think raised the consciousness of people um, in a way that maybe nothing else has about both the fragility of our democracy and the need to protect it. And so, I give them, you know, a great amount of, uh, you know, respect. Um, they're going to have to write like anything because, you know, come January, they're clearly going to be gone, um, but they have done, I think, a great service in exposing not only what happened on January the 6th, uh, but also, to ta- I think, to engender conversation and, and concerns more generally about our, uh, our, our democracy.
1: The Attorney General has... The, the Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, has appointed a special counsel. Uh, what's your what's your feeling about that to uh, pursue the possibility of charges against a former president?
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. Um, I did a, an interview with David Axelrod probably a couple of years ago. So you know I was say a couple of years ago, but that's pandemic years. Everything it seems like a couple of years ago, but it was actually before the pandemic. So was, I guess longer than that. Um, and he asked me that question, and I said, you know, I'd be really hesitant to bring charges against a former president. Very divisive. Um, you know, sometimes as bad as it might be, it's better to kind of move on. And I said that the pardon of uh, of Nixon by Ford, you know, controversial, but at least allowed the, the nation to move on. That was Eric then. Um, now having understood the, the depths and the breadth of what um, Trump and his acolytes, confederates, co-conspirators, you know, what they did, uh, I'm of the view that unless they are held accountable, including the former president, Um, we send a dangerous message um, that says you can attempt a coup, you can try to subvert this democracy in the most basic way, and the only thing that will happen is that maybe your reputation will be stained. You will not suffer any kind of um, criminal consequence. And so I think that um, if the facts are there and if the law is there, that charges should be brought against uh, the former president.
1: Apparently, you could run for office in Minnesota and you'd be elected. <laughs> uh, have, have you... Yeah, but... <laughs> Have, have Keith ever,
0: Ellison has the job I want,
1: though, you know? <laughs> have you ever thought about running for office?
0: Yeah, I did. Um, I, I thought about running for mayor of Washington, D.C., after I'd been the United States attorney there. Uh, and my lovely wife, she's an OBGYN. gyn um, As I said, she's the sister of Vivian Malone, who integrated the University of Alabama. Yeah. She's the love of my life. And she said, you know what, you would be a great mayor. You'd be a great mayor, and you'd be serving as a single man. <laughs> And then, then I thought about running for president, I guess in 2020, um, and I said, all right, you know, we did some polling, it looked pretty good, you know, it was, it was, the possibilities were there, you know, no no sure shot, but it looked pretty good. I talked to Barack, you know, and stuff, right? Um, and I said, I will right, we'll take a poll, the, the, first, the first poll, I took a poll in my house. Uh, I have three kids and my
1: lovely wife, um, it's four to one. <laughs> Smart move. Yeah. Well, one of the students in the house here asked what are you proudest of in your career
0: Ooh. you know it's interesting that's like asking me which of my kids do I like the most um, <laughs> and on a given day I could answer that question you know um, but I, you know, I tend to think of um, at least from my justice department days to have been a part of or made decisions that um, helped people, Um, you know, the decision not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act uh, and to stand for same-sex marriage, Um, the work we did protecting the right to vote, Um, the work that we did uh, around criminal justice reform, Um, and then standing up for institutions, the decision that I made to bring the 9-11 conspirators to try them in New York City in federal court, which ultimately I was not able to do because of Congress. Um, and those people are now still in Guantanamo playing volleyball and they should have been held accountable. I mean, those are the kinds of things. But I think, you know, I, I guess I'm you know, most proud of hopefully the work that I've done that has made this nation a little more fair, um, a little more just. History will ultimately be the determiner of that.
1: And one of the things you did during your time and, uh, as the Attorney General was over, you oversaw a 21st Century Policing mm-hmm. Task Force. Yep. Uh, Minneapolis, of course, has had issues with policing, serious trouble. Uh, and we're reflecting on, on policing now in our city following the murder of George Floyd. And uh, I wonder if there's something you learned that could help us in Minneapolis think about how our policing uh, ought to be going. Well, one thing I think people need as a as kind of a baseline, you need to understand that there's not a
0: tension between a fair and equitable criminal justice system and fair and equitable law enforcement and public safety. You know, you can keep people safe, and that has to be the prime concern of, you know, Keith Ellison, my concern as Attorney General, uh, to keep the American people safe, but to do so in a way where the system is perceived as and actually is is fair. You know, we started something in the Obama administration in 2013 called the Smart on Crime Initiative. Too many politicians always say, we're gonna get tough on crime, you know? And tough on crime, too often has meant we're gonna put in place more mandatory minimum sentences, we're gonna take discretion away from judges, um, we're gonna put people in jail for extended periods of time that are not commensurate with you know, the things that they've done. Now, people need to be held accountable and people perhaps need to go to jail, but if you're a first time drug seller and do so in a nonviolent way, now that's a crime, and that has negative consequences for a whole range of people and you need to be held accountable. But at first time, you know, you look at the federal system, depending on the amount of drugs that you had, you could go to jail for 20, 30 years. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I was a judge for five years and I had to do those kinds of things and I said, I just can't do that. I just cannot sit up here with my you know, a vision of what a fair sentence ought to be here and have my hands tied behind my back by what the laws that Congress um, has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, so I think you know, the structure of law enforcement, um, law enforcement priorities, these are the things that I think have to be wrestled with by people who are in positions of power, elected officials, appointed officials, but there has to be community input um, a, as well. You, you can't think that you're gonna get the system that you want, whether it's the criminal justice system or anything else, by simply observing. You know, uh, democracy is a participatory sport. Um, we don't get, you know, and, and positive change is not promised. It only happens as a result of commitment, action, you know, sacrifice. And so, with those kind of basic tenets, um, my strong belief is that you've all got to be involved in the uh, in the effort.
1: The long. You you say several times in your book, the long arc of history does not bend toward justice by itself. Right, right. Everybody's got to lean into it. Yeah, here's the deal. You know, Dr. King
0: said famously that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But here's the deal. It doesn't bend on its own. It only bends when people put their hands on that arc and pull it towards justice. And that's what I think each and every one of us has to ask ourselves. What are you doing, you know? What are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing to pull that art towards justice? Um, A system of American apartheid was destroyed, not because its time was over, but because people put their hands on that art and pulled it towards justice. Women got the right to vote, not because there was a, a, a revelation of some sort, it was because women sacrificed you know, put their hands on that Ark and pulled it towards justice. We are fully capable, our history tells us that. We are fully capable if we put our hands on that arc in great numbers, in sustained, with a sustained effort. We can pull that Ark towards justice. We can put this country in a place where it has never been and where it should be. You know, you think about it, my father during World War II served in the Army. Um, he only served here in the United States, and he said he did his job great. Japanese never got into the country, the Germans never got into the country. I said, okay, Dad, that's, that's your story, we'll go with that. Um, he's born in Barbados, comes to the United States, enlists in the Army at the age of 40 uh, during the war. And while he's in uniform in North Carolina, he's told to get to the back of a bus. He's never experienced it before. He's Barbados to New York, he's in uniform in war. And he's told to go to the back of the bus. He's in Kansas. And he's told to go around to the side to get a hamburger. And he's kind of like, well, you know, what is this all about? Well, the deal is, his boy becomes the Attorney General of the United States. And that shows the progress. <laughs> that shows the progress that this nation can make. But it didn't just happen between Sonny Holder, Eric Holder, the original Eric Holder, Sonny Holder, and Eric Holder Jr., a whole bunch of people had to do a whole bunch of things to make my appointment as Attorney General of the United States possible. And so in that personal story, there is an example of what happens if we all put our hands on that arc and pull it towards justice.
1: Several questions want us to go back to the electoral college, mm-hmm. uh, and how, how does that change, or is there a, kind of a, another way to work around that, which you describe in your book?
0: Yeah, I mean, to change the electoral college, the best way would be to amend the Constitution. The likelihood of that happening is pretty slim. So there is this thing called the Interstate Voter Compact, which says that uh, each state would decide. Each state signs into the compact, which says we'll take our electoral votes and not vote, cast our votes for who won, who got the greatest number of votes in our state. We'll cast our electoral votes for who won the national popular vote. And if you do that, the electoral college would then reflect the popular will. And you don't even need to have all the states agree to do this. You only need to have states totaling 270 electoral votes, which is the majority in the electoral college. And if you get 200 and se- states totaling 270 electoral votes saying we'll cast our votes for who won the popular vote, you essentially render um, you know, meaningless the electoral college. This effort is underway. Um, their compact now has about 193, 195 um, electoral votes. States have agreed to it. It's a self-executing thing, which means once it gets 270, it immediately goes into effect. Michigan is the next state that will be considering it. Um, it and it's it, it going to be difficult um, because you're going to have to go through some states now that um, if not are Republican or purple. And it's going, to be, it's going to be difficult to get from 193, 195 to 270. But that's one of the ways, that's one of the, the um, suggestions I have in the book to
1: kind of to neuter the, um, the electoral college. <clears throat> we should note that Minnesota, Mr. Allison, has not yet uh, signed on with this. Yeah. <laughs> you said earlier we need to do stuff. There's one right there you can do. <laughs> We've got some young people in the house here, and one of them has written this question, how can youth, paren, tomorrow's problem solvers, work for these necessary changes? What would you advise young people?
0: Well, at a basic level, um, where are these folks? Over there, to the right. Over there, all right. Wave around so we can see where you are. All right. (laughs) They're distressingly young, yes. 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 yes, yes. Well, one thing I would certainly say is that people, young people, if you look at the demographic from 18 to 29, that is now the largest voting block in the country, largest voting block in the country. But they have far less power than boomers, my generation, because we vote in far greater numbers proportionally um, than they do. Um, and so a basic thing is that young people have to vote. Uh, young people are... The differences, we, again, just looking at some preliminary statistics, actually just looking at the race in Georgia, I saw some numbers reported. If you look at um, voters 18 to 29, they are for Warnock over Herschel Walker like 70 to 30. Um, and other, if, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, if you go above 40, um, Walker is beating Warnock um, in terms of voters. Um, some preliminary stuff that we've seen, again, again, looking kind of nationwide, and this is all, again, all preliminary stuff. Um, Democrats won by resounding numbers, eight, the 18 to 29 vote, but lost every other demographic, every other age demographic. The younger, that you, the closer you got to 29, the, the margins were slimmer, and when you got to, you know, people like me above 65, we just, you know, we just, we just did all, we did all kinds of wrong stuff. Um, And so they have to vote in greater numbers um, because the reality is, you know, elections are certainly a referendum on, you know, the performance of the, the people who are running, but it's also about the future, you know? And so when we talk about climate, when we talk about reproductive freedoms, criminal justice reform, um, religious freedoms. Um, this is all, you know this is stuff that will be decided in legislatures, in Congress, and um, young people have the capacity to shape the America that, um, that we will have. And so I would urge them to, to certainly vote if they're not old enough to vote, to become engaged in our, our, our civic life. Um, and to be parts of organizations that are engaged in governmental things. But even beyond that, to be engaged in just the lives of their communities. And I'd say this for, you know, for those of us who may be not as young, but who are young at heart. Um, you know, take a way in which you can find an hour or two hours a week to be engaged in your community to help you know, maybe kids who are starved for the kind of attention that every American child is entitled to. It won't be easy, you know, have important business lives and personal lives, find an extra hour or two to do that, but you're going to feel better about yourself um, at the end of that week. Um, you're certainly going to help the people that you are interacting with, and you're going to have a positive impact on um, on the nation. And so I would certainly urge young people to do that, but I would not leave it there. I think this is something that we all should be doing, asking ourselves again, what am I doing to pull that art towards justice? Thank you for that
1: hopeful note. We'll end there. Thank you, Eric Holder, for being here.
0: been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, recorded recently at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis. To hear this speech again, and to see the video of it, go to Westminsterform.org or find it on our KMOJcast Podcast, 899-KMOJ, The People Station.